Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. My new book, You Are Now Less Dumb, comes out in paperback on August 5th. And if you like this podcast, I'm pretty sure you will like this book. But don't take my word for it. Listen to this friendly robot recite the Publisher Weekly's starred review. McGrady's newest, a follow-up to 2012's You Are Not So Smart, explores the ways in which the brain cheats and edits and alters reality. He ranges far and wide in his explication of various theories of individual and social psychology, in the process shedding light on the personal blind spots that screw reality while also allowing us to navigate it. In a section on ego depletion, the author walks readers through a recent study that tested the relationship between feelings of being excluded and eating habits. Turns out those in the ostracized desk group, when presented with a bowl of cookies, just kept mushing them into their sad faces. From there he goes on to discuss Freud's theory of the ego and Henry David Thoreau's decision to willfully exclude himself from society. That fusion of ripe rose and enlightening many lessons is what makes this book so special. Page after page, readers will be laughing, learning, and looking at themselves in new ways. McRaney is a fine stylist, easily balancing anecdote, analysis, and witty asides. Despite a flippant and self-help title, this book is seriously informative. Thank you, Robot. And thank you, Publishers Weekly. And now, our show. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 27. Carl Sagan, and this is a song that was created by John Boswell, and you can find more of his work at Symphony of Science, and this is just something about which I can be completely non-cynical. It immediately fills my tank with that special concoction Carl Sagan was great at creating, a mix of awe and humility, revealing how tiny and fragile and on the verge of collapse our own species is as it floats around in the vast expanse we've only just now begun to understand. Whenever I'm feeling overwhelmed or frustrated or depressed, I seek this out for that feeling. Carl Sagan was a great communicator of science, not 
just science facts, but what science does for us. In which we float like a boat of dust in the morning sky. But the brain does much more than just recollect. It intercompares, it synthesizes, analyzes, it generates abstractions. The simplest thought, like the concept of the number one, has an elaborate logical underpinning. The brain has its own language for testing the structure and consistency of the world. Cosmos was a mini-series about space, physics, chemistry, astronomy, and the human species itself. It aired in 1980, 50 million people watched it, and it changed the way Americans thought about science and scientists. Two other science communicators preceded Carl Sagan with shows that ran a year or two earlier in the UK. One was the delightful, wonderful, I want to give him a hug right now, David Attenborough, who directed our attention toward nature with his 1979 series, Life on Earth. The South American rainforest, the richest and most varied assemblage of life in the world. Those are howler monkeys up there. There are around 50 different kinds of monkeys in these forests. Some of the most beautiful creatures here are hummingbirds. 54 different kinds have been found within a few miles of where I'm standing, and over 300 have been found in South America as a whole. In fact, nobody knows exactly how many different kinds of animals there are here. Wherever you look, there's life. And in 1978, James Burke, the witty and mischievous science historian, presented us with connections which showed us how everything is tied together Nothing is invented in a vacuum, and geniuses combine more than they create. There's never been anything like nylons. In the first four days, DuPont sells four million pairs. Nylons make all the difference when you're on your way to a date, as we are. Our date is the year 1811. Here's a story. The first nylon stockings get made on machines that essentially haven't changed since the first machines for making cotton stockings are invented here in England by a fellow called Cotton. Now, this marvel of industrial revolution technology kicks off a movement back then that will one day in the modern world give its name to the kind of people who hate technology with a passion, the Luddites. So you just know. There was an explosion of well-made, well-written science programming in the 1980s, and that led to all the great shows that came after, many of them made for children that you may remember from growing up, if you're an older individual, things like Mr. Wizard. Because ordinarily, when you pick up a banana, you don't really pay too much attention to it, right? You, you know what a banana is, and you, kind of, and you peel it, and so forth. And Beekman's World. White bread, whole wheat bread... French bread, ooh la la, are examples of breads made with yeast. And, of course, the science guy. Now you may have heard people say, you know, you only use 10% of your brain. Well, that's not true. Use 100% of your brain all day and all night, even while you're asleep. You'll do it all with your brain. It seemed like at least when I was a kid, that science was a big deal and it was important. And there would always be this sort of programming on TV and 
I suppose the adults were thinking that science literacy was an attainable goal now that the public was willing to watch commercials and science experiments back to back. But then reality TV came along and a lot of the newly created channels that started out devoted to science and nature programming started to change. There's a phenomenon called channel drift or network decay. You've noticed it before. Instead of showing music videos over time, that channel starts to show teenagers who didn't know they were pregnant giving birth. Or instead of dinosaurs, you eventually see just families with children who like to throw tantrums. And then you see those children throwing tantrums. Over time, our science programming got a lot less sciency. So looking back on all of this, considering the legacy of science programming on television, it seemed like a tremendous moment in 2011 when it was announced that Cosmos would be returning in 2014. 13 hours of bold, fearless science programming in prime time. And why now? After so long, are we getting a new Cosmos? That's what everyone was asking. Not that anyone was complaining, but... What snapped television out of its stupor? And well, the short answer is YouTube. Have you ever noticed that people speaking Spanish sound like they're talking really fast? Para aquellas personas poco familiares con un idioma, el parlante siempre aparenta hablar demasiado deprisa. The universe. How big is it? Does it have a center? Does it have an edge? Is it getting bigger? And if so, why? Today's observation I'm going to share with you is amazing. It's the discovery of a new species of spider, potentially. Now, sound is nothing but vibrations. What is it about our biology that makes only some of them scary? Here's an idea. At some point in the future, we might become legitimately worried about the well-being of robots. That was Veritasium and Minute Physics and Smarter Every Day and It's Okay to Be Smart and Idea Channel. And there are many, many more and not just YouTube, but also podcasts and blogs and Facebook pages and so on. All the people who grew up watching those shows from the 80s and 90s received the gift of the Internet, a place where you can both learn and share what you've learned from and with millions of others and all of these people are now making shows of their own, and they're very, very popular. To put it in perspective, the average episode of Game of Thrones is watched by about 7 million people or so, and Fox News is watched in prime time by about 2 million people or so, and much less than that otherwise. <laughs> CNN much less in both categories. So the fact that the new Cosmos was watched every night by about 6 million people was phenomenal, but most of these YouTube video channels can boast similar numbers. This video from Vsauce has been watched so far by about 13 million people. Hey, Vsauce, Michael here, and what if every single person on Earth jumped at the exact same time? Could it cause an earthquake, or would we not even be able to tell? Well, first things first, let's talk about the Earth's rotation. The Earth's All of these science shows are producing ratings that tower far and above anything on cable or network television, especially if you put them all together. And so science is back, and that means there's a new generation of science communicators out there. 
And as you'll hear in this episode's interview, though many of these fun, sciencey things are delivering facts and trivia, many of them are also going a step further in discussing science itself, the tool, the method, the philosophies. And that makes me optimistic. Because to me, the best part of the new cosmos was in the intro of the first episode when Neil deGrasse Tyson said this. This adventure is made possible by generations of searchers strictly adhering to a simple set of rules. Test ideas by experiment and observation. Build on those ideas that pass the test. Reject the ones that fail. Follow the evidence wherever it leads and question everything. Accept these terms, and the cosmos is yours. And that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we talk about a different topic in the realm of self-delusion. And then we talk to an expert on that topic to try to understand it better. And then we eat a cookie and we talk about some other science stuff. Now, this episode is a little bit different because I recently collaborated with Joe Hansen from the YouTube channel, which is produced by PBS Digital Studios. It's okay to be smart. And yes, you are not so smart and it's okay to be smart, smushed into each other and had super smart versus smart fun times. And we created a video about pattern recognition in which we explain that when you blow into a Nintendo cartridge to try to make it work, you're doing nothing. And that's just because of a variety of biases and delusions. And I helped Joe write the episode so that we could get all those delusions and biases stuffed into his original idea, which was what's up with those um, Nintendo cartridges. And so you can watch that on YouTube. I'll have links to it. Um, And you can go to It's okay to be smart on YouTube to watch it. It's one of the most recent videos. And so Joe is one of these new science communicators who uh, is becoming very popular on YouTube. And I thought it would be great since we collaborated to just bring him on the show and sort of discuss what it's like to see this, um, this shift, this surge from the inside. So let's pick his brain. So, Joe, you have this really awesome YouTube channel. It's okay to be smart. Um, how did that get started? How did you get rolling into this world of science communication? A little bit of serendipity and a little bit of boredom. Um, <laughs> I, was, I, I have a PhD in biology that I finished last year. Uh, I'm a, I, I spent all this time in graduate school thinking about what your research means, what you want to do with the rest of your life, and... Uh, I decided that I would try my hand at science communication because I, I mean I love teaching. I was always the nerd at the party who wants to like tell my friends about this amazing new article he read, uh, and I kind of just started doing that to, to, as an outlet for myself. And thanks to the beauty of the internet, there's there's people who on the other end waiting to to eat it all up. So yeah, it started a website. It's okay to be smart dot com. That it exploded beyond my wildest dreams and. One day I got an email that said, uh, hey, let's turn this into a YouTube show, and the rest is kind of history. That's great. Well, I, love, uh, I love the way that things work out on the, uh, in this like, new information economy where you, can, uh, you just get an email one day and somebody says, would you like to go into the grand stage? And uh, if you're ready for it, you can, be, you can really create something amazing. I like your 
stuff because you'll you sort of there's this thing I, I like about there's this philosophy I like that some science communicators have that say you can ask a question about anything. It's okay to ask a question about anything because there's there is probably an answer to that question, or at least we have this method by which we could figure out the answer. And you have things like why do we cook or why are some things, uh, why do some things sound scary? And like, what is wind? Questions that like, chill. it's okay for a child to ask. Yeah. And it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, go ahead. It's, it's, I mean, it's so silly that, that people think like once you're an adult, you can't ask these, these basic questions about how the universe works. But, uh, I sit there, I go outside and the wind hit me one day and I was, I have no idea what is happening. Like you think about that, that there's literally air moving all around you. You have no idea where that air came from, what's forcing it, uh, why the sky is blue. I mean, these are things that really change the way that you walk around in your daily life. You know, if you ever see me standing on a street corner staring straight up into the sky, that's what I'm doing, is answering, you know, wondering about these basic questions. Uh, it's kind of like a Feynman-esque uh, a, a way of looking at the world that uh, you know, just because something is simple doesn't mean that it's that it's beautiful or interesting, and uh, I think I think that probably resonates with people more than some completely obs- you know, obscure explanation of quantum mechanics that they can't really visualize. Yeah, you know, like that's a great thing that's happening right now. It's a really good time for sciencey things in the United States. Um, I don't know how it is around the rest of the world, but if you live here, you you have to in your internet citizen, you have to have noticed by now that pop science is really surging. There's, you know, Bill Nye debated Ken Ham and there's a new Cosmos and Radiolab and um, Malcolm Gladwell books are make sell millions and there's Freakonomics and um, all sorts of stuff being shared on uh, social media, different social media only things, your channel, other channels like yours. Um, what is your take on why all this is happening? What is what is fueling this? I, I mean, the Feynman videos, what, what, like you were saying before, like I, those are things that sort of have been uh, drudged up from the past that would that never got a big audience, and now they're being displayed all over. I mean, I see people sharing those Feynman videos and remixing them, and it's awesome. Um, what do you think is your take on what is your take on why all this is happening right now? Well, that's a huge part of what you hit on there. I mean, these, these this fun to imagine series that Feynman did in like 1981 or something. I mean, who probably you know, sitting in a drawer at the BBC somewhere, and one guy uploads it. Um, yeah, the, the internet has given us uh, this. Uh, I guess obviously, this delivery mechanism it allows you to make your show here on the podcast, all the YouTube series that we have. Um, what what it's done is show proven that that a lot of media companies were completely wrong when they would assume that people just weren't interested in this stuff. That you had to make uh, that the only science shows that people could watch had to do with explosions or <laughs> telling us how we were all going to die tomorrow, or 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 even worse, inventing I don't know maybe fictional sharks or mermaids or something that doesn't exist. I'm not going to name any names, but um, you know it, what we've shown is that there are incredibly curious people and and there's intelligent people out there. I think there's people who want to know more and want to understand more. They want to they 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 think this is fun and maybe they uh, maybe they're not getting it. But it, it shows there's an audience for it. I mean, take take our YouTube series. And I have I have a newer show, but some of my friends that, that uh, in the YouTube science community have been at this for a few years, and we've got audiences that are bigger than primetime television shows. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you you take out the middleman. We talk about this idea of gatekeepers all the time. Uh, the internet has just completely leveled that 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 system. The gate is blown wide open, uh, and it allows us to both 
create what we want to, get support directly from our audiences, uh, yeah, interact with, with the people that, that, are, that are learning and, and asking these questions and find out exactly what they want to know. Um, obviously, that can work for, 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 uh, for bad as much as it can for good. Yeah. But I think for the most part, that's, that's been behind this resurgence is the proof there's always been people out there that want to know this stuff, that are curious. Um, and now, you know, Cosmos was on Netflix, the original for with Carl Sagan for, for years and years and years, exploding in popularity. I mean, how I made a case recently that Carl might be more popular now than he was when he was alive. Uh, if, I mean, if you pay attention to Tumblr and Facebook and sort of this, there's a cult of, 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 Sag- right. of Saganism out there. It's, it's amazing. And, um, and I've also noticed there's, what, I, love, I really want to get your take on this because there's also some curmudgeonly people out there who don't seem to like this recent surge in popularity with pop science. The, um, the nerds are sexy, pictures of space, inspirational messages. Um, some of it, I think some people use it as sort of a replacement, a secular spiritual content, you know, and, uh, and some people, they criticize it as being superficial in, in that a picture of Neil deGrasse Tyson saying, you know, y'all mofos need some science up in here isn't the same as someone p- making a post about how the Krebs cycle works or how the, how a carburetor works, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even some, like, true scientists who've come out against pop science, especially Malcolm Gladwell books, and there's some legitimate criticisms in there, I guess, but uh, that those books might be too simplified or too eager to make a point. So what are your thoughts about the curmudgeonly side of all that? Yeah, there's there's a point to be made there that, that we have to be careful uh, about the difference between trivia and 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 science. Now, if the if the universe only existed of Neil deGrasse Tyson animated gifs, uh, that would be fun. That would be great for Neil deGrasse Tyson, but that wouldn't really push forward, you know, the right. the march of scientific progress and and knowledge and understanding or whatever it is that we're working towards here. But these are these are avenues for people to to begin to access it. That's their like initial sweet little taste that that keep, might keep them coming back for more. Um, so we have to balance that, sure. Uh, trivia, it, you know, the, it, the science of farts or something. Like, <laughs> it, it depends on how you want to take. You know, we could you can find very interesting things there, or you can just sort of exploit the the, the click worthiness or the click baiting kind of tendency of the internet that way. Um, that's when it comes up to the scientific community and scientific communication community to make sure that we're balancing self policing. Um, but I'm not, you know, I, we, this, this, you mentioned this spiritual kind of response to it. Uh, that's a word that a lot of people are a little bit uncomfortable with. But I think we want to, why, is it, why would it be a bad thing that we're eliciting that kind of deep emotional response from our audiences? I mean, we're not logical robots. Uh, I, you know, the best science communication is something that makes you feel something, you know, whether it's whether you're laughing or you're angry or you're sad or, I mean, we, we want to appeal to uh, not only our logic, but uh, that's why we tell stories around this stuff, right? See, that's, I, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say all that. That's, that's, that's been my approach to it as well, is that this is um, the kind of person who wouldn't uh, go beyond the trivia side of things was, would never go beyond it anyway. And so, but the kind of people who might dig deeper, this would be their opportunity to go, wait, I would like to learn more about this. And there are, uh, levels of, uh, you know, of explanation that you can get to online. If you want to get all the way down into, you know, what are the, the, you know, the fundamental 
biological atomic roots of whatever it is you're talking about, you can find that information beyond this initial uh, cool thing you saw on Facebook. So I'm not an attractor, though I I can see where people are kind of <laughs> anyone who spent their entire well, you know, you you're about you have a PhD, so uh, I'm sure that like uh, you have to sort of balance in your mind, how am I going, how deeply am I going to explain this? At what point does it become something that I'm going to get lost in the weeds with? So what is like your personal philosophy when it comes to science communication? When you begin to unravel something for a, uh, an audience of lay people, what is sort of your personal philosophy about how to do that? Uh, so you know, I, I find my ideas very, very illogically and serendipitously. It's just, it's just a lot of reading. It's a lot of consuming information out of my own curiosity, reading online all day long, reading books, and constantly sort of jotting notes and trying to make connections. And over, over time, these connections, if, if you, you know, I, I keep track of these things, I, I file things away because uh, I have a very frantic mind. And over time, they, stay, they make themselves visible that you've got three or four interesting tidbits around, around a topic. Uh, like this happened recently. Uh, I made a video about ultraviolet vision and, this, and the artist Claude Monet. And mm-hmm. uh, you end up tying in these completely uh, opposing subjects in some way, like art history and the science of, of vision and, and the, the spectrum that we can see and how, that, and how our eyes respond to that. Because um, it turned out that Claude Monet could see ultraviolet light after he got cataracts removed later in life, and this affected his paintings. And you can sort of use this art as a as a lens, if you will, to uh, understanding about works in a certain way. Um, so my approach is to take, you know, we can always find the science in something, and I can explain you a thing, but it, to make it meaningful to the to the most people, I try to say science plus blank and fill in that blank with something else Um, because very few people out there are just interested in wanting to understand the science. We're not sitting in a classroom where we're going to get tested on this one day. We need to describe why this is important in your, in your life. Like why would you want, why would you want to take time out of your lunch break to watch my video? I need to, we need to make those stories meaningful. So Mm -hmm. fill in that blank and that's, that's, we're not two dimensional people. The who cares? The who cares element, as they would say in in journalism classes. Exactly. Who, what, when, or why, and and who cares? Um, that's really cool because you do a great job of doing that. And um, and what what does it feel like to be part of this uh, club of uh, new science communicators? Uh, uh, how does that uh, change the way you go from creating content before you know you have all these eyes on you to after? It's exciting. I mean, it's not without a little bit of pressure, uh, obviously. You want to make everything as good as possible. Anybody who makes things wants to make everything that they, the, as good as possible. Um, but what, what, I mean, I look up to my colleagues. I, I, the, the people that I've met through, through YouTube and working online um, have made me better and have uh, you know, become invaluable friends and colleagues in this, and to see the amount of talent that's out there—that's that's actually the most encouraging thing to me. I did an interview last week, and somebody asked me, "What's what are you like hopeful for for the future?" And it's looking at the people that I work with and and the, the passion that they bring to their projects. I think we're going to be okay finally. Like I've been a little worried, but I think we're going to be okay. <laughs> I feel that too. That's good. Uh, and who are some of the? Um 
for people who may have this be their first chance of hearing their first time hearing about this this world of the of the web and of YouTube, who are some other people out there you think people should be checking out aside from like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye? Who are some other people? Yeah, the big guys. Everybody knows about them, right? But so I just got back from a a, a YouTube convention called VidCon, and uh, it's the biggest video conference in the U.S. And the the educational panel with a lot of my colleagues had about uh, about a thousand people in there in the standing room outside of another thousand. So the, the passion behind these that the celebrity that's forming, uh, Michael Stevens, who makes a channel called Vsauce. Um, so great, so such a great channel. You know, Michael's Michael's amazing. Uh, uh, really, like pulls us all forward to 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 being a, to try to be anywhere near as good as him. Uh, he's got something like six million subscribers, maybe more. They just hit a billion views on their channels. He made it on the Jimmy Kimmel show. I mean, that's from from YouTube. There, um, smarter every day. My friend Destin uh, Veritasium with Derek Muller, uh, Hank Green. Amazing projects from SciShow to Crash Course that are used in schools everywhere. Emily Grassley on the Brain Scoop. Um, yeah, how, about how many views did you say Vsauce is getting, or how many subscribers they have? Between the Vsauce channels, they've got a billion, a, a <laughs> billion views throughout the entire. I think there's three channels, three main channels. Right. Of Vsauce. And like the like a typical video can get like two million, three million views, right? Oh yeah, I mean that that in like the first week, uh, you know, they have ten million or so on the on the most popular videos, maybe more. It's just it's amazing. So that is amazing. And so I looked up um, uh, as you were saying that I was like, well, how how, how many views does or how many uh, what is the what are the ratings for Game of Thrones? And it's like uh, about six to seven million per episode, and their like season finale is nine million viewers. So that's really weird when you think about how we judge what is and what is not popular in, you know, pop culture. Um, these Vsauce channels, your channel, all these other science channels are getting as many or not, or if not more attention and more viewings than things like Game of Thrones. That's amazing. I think that's a good world. I want to live in that world. Yeah, we live, we live in that world. It's just, I think, guess our media hasn't caught up. <laughs> no, it's amazing. Yeah, we, all, we all kind of exist in our little media bubbles, our, our bubbles of consumption, right, of, about what we, what we filter and what we choose to consume. And so, you know, you ask the average 16-year-old who hangs out on YouTube, and Michael Stevens from Vsauce is, is their Bill Nye. Like, that's, he's, he's a, he needs security to walk around VidCon, but he can go to the grocery store and, uh, you know, he's just another guy shopping for groceries with beard and a beard and glasses. <laughs> yeah, that is really really cool. So, what is um, why did you pick biology as a specialty? What and what got you interested in science uh, just in general? Yeah, it's hard to figure out like that 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 original spark. Uh, you know, I I was lucky enough to have parents who uh, supported both our, our academic and, and curiosity development as well as kind of trying to create whole people between me and my brother. Um, we lived in New Mexico when I was growing up. There was, we were always outside, kind of the proverbial turning over rocks. Uh, and then I think to get rid of us in the summertime, my parents luckily put me in some like summer programs uh, when we lived in Houston uh, at, at the Natural Science Museum. And we're doing stuff like dissecting sharks and you know, doing uh, doing mock space missions in this full size mission control they have there. You know, I'll never forget when I cut open the stomach of this tiny shark at this science museum and found a shrimp inside of it. 
<laughs> it was like that sealed it. I was like, "This wow, well, this is like this is actual this, the circle of life right before me." That, that you could do that with your own hands. That you could sort of experience these things. Um, yeah, that, and then lucky to have great teachers. Uh, but by the time I got to college, you know, it's just the workings of life are amazing to me. Physics is awesome. Space is cool, but. You know, this is what keeps us alive and curious. This is the, this is what keeps the, the plumbing running in, at the home office, right? So we, I, right. I think stories about <clears throat> biology are, are, are will trump any physics story any day of the week. I'm laying down you my know, gauntlet to the physicists. I like that you say that. I, I have a similar thing where, um, you know, the STEM sciences, the science, the the hard sciences, as they like to say, um, include, which include biology, but there's always, there's this huffiness from physicists, you know, uh, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, I understand that when you get down to it, everything is made of atoms and everything is, you know, physics is subsumes everything. But I like to say, at least with psychology, which is like my jam, I like the idea that physicists are subsumed by psychology. So, um, you know, they have, they're going to have affairs and they're going to uh, mistakenly uh, do research based off of some sort of political agenda and all those sorts of things. They can't avoid that psychology also uh, affects the actual human being doing the physics. And in, in, from your perspective, you know, what the, what they ate for dinner can vastly change whether or not they make a discovery the next day. You know, so. And without without biology, there would be no physicists. So Right. <laughs> and, no, and no psychology. So it's just... Uh, it's sort of similar to, I mean, you, you're talking about different spheres of, um, of media, what you consume. I mean, there, you, the way you want to divide up what science is and what we're all looking at, what everyone is researching, what everyone is communicating, uh, that whole, um, division is, um, I mean, it's not completely arbitrary, but it is, it could be sliced up in, in different ways and we could have different classifications for what people are researching, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but on the other side of the coin, we don't want to go too far there because in the, one of the great parts about uh, why this kind of science communication works as opposed to what we do in classrooms is that we do put so many walls up and we're like, this book goes with this class and only this book goes with this class and never the two classrooms shall meet. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 we obviously know that, that when we combine these science and look for the intersections and we want to create complete, it's not just biology humans or physicist humans. So uh, um, let's talk a little bit about science literacy itself, because I guess in the end, that's sort of one of the goals here. And America is in an interesting place. <laughs> I, I sent you before the, uh, we started the interview, this, uh, the National Science Foundation. Every two years, they conduct a survey and it's a very well done survey with a large sample of Americans. And they just sort of try to figure out what is the level of understanding out there uh, in the public about some simple scientific facts. And what, what does the public feel? How does the public feel about scientists? And it's encouraging because the, the last time I did this, most Americans say that scientists are great people and we respect them and they're doing important work. And um, we want them to keep doing that work. And the majority of people say that. And that's good. But when they ask them these, some, some very specific questions like, um, does the earth go around the sun or does the sun go around the earth? Um, about a third of people get that wrong. And um, when it comes to evolution, about 56% of people get that those questions wrong. And um, it's kind of weird that some of these very simple things, uh, even when the majority of people get them right, it doesn't really ever go much above 75% of the population. Um, what is your take on that level of scientific literacy out there? So, scientific literacy is a really hard thing to put your finger on. Um, it, I, there's, there's not a great definition for this. So what does it really mean for somebody to be scientifically literate? 
these these surveys are a little troubling to me because uh, there's a lot of kind of factual questions. And we say all the time, like, science is not a collection of facts, right? But a lot of the questions on these seem to weigh someone's understanding of science as if to whether they know this thing. Uh, obviously, it's troubling if somebody doesn't know that the Earth orbits the sun. Um, <laughs> but uh, at the same time, when you, if you look at the way that an evolution question on these surveys is asked, what you end up unlocking, I think, is identifying someone's um, ideology or their political yeah. beliefs and not really weighing their understanding of science. Uh, there's a, a study out of Yale that reworded this evolution question to say, do you understand how scientists view the theory of evolution? And all of a sudden the numbers went up. <laughs> People mm -hmm. like, as long as it doesn't involve me agreeing with the scientist, they can, they can understand, they seem to understand the issues at play, but the trouble seems to be having them internalize those issues and kind of accept them in their own life. So I wonder if we're just right. kind of giving them a litmus test for their political views or their religious views instead of really what they know and feel about science. I think you're absolutely correct. That this, uh, these questions, anytime you do a survey like this and you're not actually having a conversation with someone, you know, they're, I think I would, I assume that in part they're, they're adding a, a couple drops of this is what I want to be true, or this is what, um, I would rather be true. Um, instead of saying this is absolutely true. Um, because that same question about do human, are, are human beings, the question is, True or false, human beings developed from earlier species of animals. Um, in America, that's 44% of people say that's true. But in the UK, it's more like 80% of people. Now, I'm no, on all the other questions, it's almost exactly the same. Like, if I, In fact, strangely enough, or maybe um, to some people's uh, surprise, um, people in the United States actually do better on these straight-up questions in general than, um, than people in Japan and, and, and um and in the UK in general, but on the questions like this one about uh, evolution, that's when the number dips. And you can definitely see there's got to be another reason for this. It's not pure ignorance of the topic. It's, uh, it's what you're saying. Um, and so considering that, what is it, from your perspective, what should people who are involved in science communication and people who are involved in being patrons of those people, what what is scientific literacy? What should be the goal of sci of trying to reach a level of, of a scientific, uh, scientifically literate society. So we want people to be able to make informed decisions with science being a part of that influence. But I don't think any of us can be so kind of proud of our subject to, to assume that that's ever going to be the only influence for people. So I think it's really important. Uh, you know, people are starting to understand more in science communication today that uh, we have to at least acknowledge all of these other influences that are that are that are pl at play in the brains and and and, uh, and of the people that we're trying to reach. Um, so we we need to. It, it, this goes back to involving more of this emotion and and not just appealing to pure logic and and knowledge. Uh, so that's why I think this new you know we see all these new waves of, of storytelling science communication as opposed to just the old uh, kind of documentary. Uh, film, let me just show you all this nature, show you all this space. We're trying to really uh, get people to take an emotional investment. We know that people respond better to science when they have a positive 
uh, sort of a friend in play if they have if they if they like the person that's talking to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why somebody like Bill Nye is, is so effective as a science communicator, I think, because people growing up have a decade's worth of positive uh, association with with old Bill and his bow ties. That's why he's so great at being this generational representative for science. Um, so I'm I'm really interested to see what we're going to do. Uh, like we 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 know that if pastors and preachers and churches start speaking about the importance of climate change, uh, people that we would normally not associate with with being supportive of of man made climate change begin to change their minds because, mm-hmm. because there's a different we're, we're approaching it by a different avenue. Um, same with 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 stories about evolution when religious scientists who you know we may or may not agree with uh you know the the religion that they believe in but when they say that they can accept evolution and also be religious that gives us an avenue and a representative i think that can begin to reach some of these maybe people who wouldn't associate with those beliefs um so it's it's about this nature of positivity with science communication uh, and understanding that very intelligent people can be kind of wrong about the science, but trying to understand other ways that we can reach them. Uh, there's plenty of ways that, you know, what we would normally call the left and progressive and intelligent people are completely wrong about science, too. Oh, yeah, definitely. That's a, a always a fun thing to, to throw on, on top of this conversation is to talk about things like GMOs and talk about things like... Uh, um, there's a, actually, I'm going to, to cap off this episode with a uh, study that I found that shows um, the exact same psychology is at play between people who are far, far right and far, far left when it comes to believing that your beliefs are, not only are your beliefs correct, but they are superior to your opponents. So um, it's, the sa- it's the same idea, you know, and, and uh, it's fascinating to see where it bubbles up from. But I think that one of the questions that comes up a lot is, or one of the, the points that a lot of people will try to make at this juncture of the conversation is that what about when it comes to pressing issues like global warming, climate change, you know, the, you know, we have politicians and heads of state and people who are in positions of power. Uh, how dangerous is it for them to have a poor understanding of, of science and what should we do about that? What should be done about that? It's incredibly dangerous. I mean, uh, when the U.S. military is paying attention to climate change as a national security issue, um, then, then I think it's time that, that we that maybe that's a signal that the rest of the government should be paying attention to. Uh, these are incredibly significant issues when it comes to antibiotic resistance. Um, we have eradicated diseases that are that are coming back in the United States because of vaccines, and frankly, we don't have that representation for that stuff in in Congress. Uh, we have two decades worth of pulling scientific representatives out of Congress. I am all for, there's this thing, uh, we, they keep calling it like a science czar. Uh, we need to stop, we take that word out, that's got a bad association, but... Science you know, czar. <laughs> you know, we used to have this office of, 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 of uh, science and technology representative that, and, and a well-staffed office that could serve Congress in informing them and being a voice for scientists um, in the U.S. government. And frankly, when you have committee meetings where people are quoting uh, information from the 19th century kind of level of understanding, uh, we need to come together and, and, and really call for support of getting an office in, this, in the federal government that can, that can assist uh, you know, our Congress in, in making these mm-hmm. decisions. 
Um, it's it's kind of a willful ignorance on their part, and it's it's a little bit troubling. But the more that we kind of gain energy with these efforts that we're doing from the bottom up, uh, it w- I think we're going to find a point when people, hopefully, that people are not willing to put up with it anymore. Yeah, I think there will be a generational change to it. And um, I like the idea. I mean, let's not call them the science czar, let's, but, um, because that's you're guaranteed that people in certain parts of the country will immediately not like that. Um, but I... You know, refer to them as like uh, it's the the nation's Spock or something. Yeah, we have a you know we're on a mission and we need someone to tell us about the science. You go over to our nation's Spock, and uh, that would work completely well. And I would love that. That would be that this person could be made into a celebrity. That would be really neat. Um, I'll give him a YouTube show. I'd, I'd be all for that. That would be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the very minimum, what do you think of the foundations of science, the method, the tool, the, the, uh, the concept that you wish that, um, you know, that the average layperson should know and understand? What would, if you could, uh, you know, wave a magic wand of science, what would those foundational concepts be that you would get across? Uh, I recently read a book called Ignorance by Stuart Firestein, which sort of com- completely changed the way that I look at that word, ignorance. Uh, most people think, I think, taking science in school, we're given these big, heavy textbooks that are full of knowledge. I have this misconception that most things are figured out. And I'd love for people to understand the way that scientists look at the world, which is that we're sort of wading into a void and illuminating uh, this vast ignorance in the world and kind of increasing our knowledge outward. I think he calls it looking for black cats in dark rooms, mm. which is, I, I, love, I love that image. Um, but also, that's, gonna, that's a messy process. So, you know, in the digital age, we see all kinds of retractions and scientific controversies and leaked emails uh, that, are, that some people think is undermining the scientific process. And to me, that just proves that's exactly how science works, you know, where it's the best self-correcting system that we have for uncovering the truths of the universe. And it's not neat and tidy. Uh, it's, not, it's not always right. But ultimately with the way that we have designed the scientific method, I think that uh, it's, it's the best process that we have for uncovering how the universe works. Mm-hmm. So for people to understand that these are, uh, yeah, this is an imperfect pr- process, but that's sort of how it's supposed to work. Yeah, there's a, in psychology right now, uh, and I, this is something I've written about in many different ways, um, there's a couple concepts, one of them being priming uh, and embodied cognition. And um, there's something and you can read about this all over the internet it's called the replication crisis in um the social sciences and the idea is that uh, a lot of these things are now being tested again in the in, under very similar circumstances and the um the expected results are either not coming out uh or the effect is much weaker than it was originally um discovered to be in the, fir- in the or the evidence suggested it was in the first couple of um studies and Replication is such an important part of science, and now that this is becoming uh, a big part of the social sciences, uh, among studies that made big headlines, there are headlines being made about the replications failing. And it's weird because it's it's being described as a crisis, and and when I look at it, I'm like, well, that's just science. That's just what science does. And uh, it's just because, in my mind, these studies became famous before they had been put through the ringer of science and through the, you know, the tearing apart process had not completely begun before best-selling books had been written about, um, had written about these topics. And now that these things are being uh, subjected to the, the process of 
coming to uh, a true conclusion about them are, are just adding more and more evidence to the pile of evidence that lets you know whether or not this is a thing. Uh, it looks like a crisis, but to me it looks like... Um, well, this is just science. This is how it works out. I mean, we'll discover something new that's just as amazing, or we will like get a clear picture of when and where these things uh, rear their heads. And um, it just becomes more nuanced over time than these blunt one study, one small group of college students, you know, examples look like in the very beginning. So um, that's the thing that, to me that is important. I'm wondering if, they, if it's a similar thing for you, that just understanding that the process, how the process itself works, not so much the facts like you were saying earlier. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we have to get away from the, uh, just the, the acquisition of, of, of facts and trivia. We want, we want, pe- we want these, this information to get out there. I mean, it's great that people want to read books about these things. It's great that websites can pop up and with such popularity. But uh, it's so important that as part of that science communication, we let people know, they're like, hey, there's always a chance this might not be what we're talking about, and and for people to feel okay about that. I I mean maybe the human brain. We all we know the human brain doesn't like ambiguity and <laughs> and uncertainty. We like to be. We like to know things. And uh, science science maybe will never ultimately know, but we get. We, it's the best way to get pretty damn close. Right. And uh, to that point, I wanted to bring everyone's attention to an article you wrote <laughs> called "On Beards, Biology, and Being a Real American." And it sort of takes everything that we've talked about uh, just now in this conversation and uh, and sort of displays it in this wonderful way because you wrote a story. There's storytelling in here. There's um, there is a you sort of bring into focus how science has been conducted and how it's conducted now and how it has a historical you know how the history of something uh, lasts and how it gets changed and altered as we do more research, but also how it's not separate from the the actual cultural atmosphere of when that science, you know, among which that science uh, was conducted and everything. Just uh, sort of, uh, if you could explain a little bit about what you discovered when you looked at this bearded man study. This is the greatest scientific paper that has ever been published. Okay. 1967, the journal Applied Microbiology, uh, a study was put out called the Microbiological Hazard of Bearded Men in the Laboratory. Okay. Um, so, as a part of this study, this was, this was done by, by military researchers uh, looking at the safety of beards in biological laboratories. Uh, so, of course, as one would, they uh, had their researchers grow their beards out and then began to uh, do things like splash dangerous bacterial cultures upon them. Or, I didn't know this, but you used to be able to buy f- uh, real hair fake beards from companies in New Jersey. You could just go in a catalog and order a, order a beard. They would they placed one of these natural hair beards on a mannequin and then they, they rubbed it down with this dangerous virus. Uh, and, of, and then they took a baby chicken and rubbed it on said beard that was <laughs> covered in this virus to see if you could transmit diseases via beards. Uh, and all in all, they did this a number of times and showed that Beards could transmit dangerous diseases in the lab if you were to dip your beard in like a vat of viruses. Uh, the conclusion of this was that beards should not be part of laboratory attire, that this was an unsafe thing. But then if you dig deeper in this, it's 1967. This is a study done by uh, a military lab on the East Coast uh, that came to the conclusion that this new style of beards and, I don't know, free-thinking Americans had no place in you know real safe biological science. 
and it was fascinating to me that they were just basically saying, you know, in the in the midst of the Vietnam War, uh, as protests begin to rise, that all the free thinkers, the, the John Lennons with you know with his big beard stage, just didn't have a place in in their scientific culture. Uh, and it also made me feel real bad because I could never grow a beard in scientific process, but at least I can, I can live through these guys. I had to, I had to get away from the microphone while you explain that. Cause this, this article, <laughs> this, everything about this makes me laugh so much because not only that, the pictures are just, uh, so the fake beard with the chickens and the guys in the shower. Um, I mean, if, if you didn't know this was real, you would think this was out of the onion, but I, I promise you this was published, and this is a reputable journal. This is the, the biggest microbiology journal in the United States. <laughs> I just love the idea, rubbing sickly chickens on beards for science. It's just, oh, yeah. And, uh, and this really points out that, okay the, okay, the method, the tool of science is one thing and then the institution of science is another and then the culture in which that institution thrives another so like um this is good you know this is actual science they're actually doing this research they're dipping yes they're dipping beards into disease-ridden uh you know into into horrible viral cultures um and then seeing what happens to chickens later on but the uh like you can totally tell that the like as you wrote that the point here is that beards the hippies are dirty and, beer, yeah. and beards are dirty on hip on dirty hippies. And look, Keep we have hippie this, science out of our labs. Yeah, exactly. We have the science to prove it. Look at these bearded men. We took pictures. Uh, it's so good. And uh, that doesn't like take away from the method of science, but it does, uh, you know, point out that it's 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 when you're it's not the facts that so much they're important, but about understanding the method itself, which is what you try to really get across in your show. And I think that's awesome. Well, thank you very much. Look, it's been wonderful. Uh, tell people how they can find you on the internet, how they can find your stuff, and if they want to keep up with you, what's, how they can do that. Awesome. Uh, you head over to youtube.com slash it's okay to be smart, O-K-A-Y, or you can go to it's okay to be smart.com or on Twitter. You can find me at J to the Izzo and uh, I don't know, find me on the sidewalk sometime. I'll be happy to talk science with you. All right. Hey, thanks so much. It was, uh, it was really great to have you on the show. I really like what you're doing. Love what you do, too. Thanks for having me. The You Are Not So Smart podcast is very happy to be a member of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. But you can find more of those podcasts at boingboing.net. And one that you might enjoy, one I think you will enjoy, is just Boing Boing Gadgets. The editors of Boing Boing and a special guest, they'll sit down and they'll just talk about different gadgets, different websites, different things in the world. And um, then they'll give you links to how you can get those things if you want them. So like in the last episode, Drew Curtis of FARC came onto the show and they reviewed RFID blocking wallets, um, those uh, new fashionable super extra battery life charger things for your phone, and a website called Fashionable Canes where you can purchase fashionable canes. So check it out. It's over at boingboing.net. It's a podcast called Boing Boing Gadgets. And I think you'll love it if you love fashionable canes. Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. 
On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or reader. And you can send your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. And if I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book. I also post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page. And you can go to the Pinterest page right now and see all the cookies that we've made from every episode up until this one, uh, the recipe, pictures of them, the stories behind them, all of that. So this week, the recipe, it comes from Trudy Wang, who she wrote this email. She says she's been listening to the podcast uh, from the very first episode, and uh, she's a big fan and she finally mustered up the courage to enter the cookie competition, as she says. Um, and she says that she loves peanut butter and chocolate, but can never pick between the two. So she tweaked a layer cookie recipe that combines them into one. And man, you can see uh, the picture at the website. This is, um, it's it's a cookie that looks, uh, when you slice it down the middle, It's you can see that it looks like, and it tastes like, a peanut butter cup, except the chocolatey part is cookie. And... This is going to be an adventure, a mouth-based odyssey. And this cookie, mm, you shall be the siren that I cannot resist. Okay, here we go. Trudy, let's taste this insane cookie. And just to give you an idea of what we're looking at here, it's this has butter and, sh and sugar and light brown sugar and eggs and vanilla extract and flour and baking soda and salt and powder and chocolate chips, cocoa powder that is. Uh, and the process of making this is very, uh, it's very involved my wife amanda she makes the cookies for the show and uh she said that it was a really complicated process but very fun uh, because you make the peanut butter stuff separate from the chocolate stuff and then you have to go through this interesting uh scooping procedure to make it all work out and um have this like secret center of, of uh of peanut butter so here we go oh boy trudy let's do this Well, 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 hmm. A bold first move, Cookie. Hmm. I move to have the cookie speak on behalf of all cookies for its deliciousness. And uh, I will have a second bite to make sure that I'm willing to let you have the floor. You are now appointed special ambassador to Cookidonia. Oh, ma'am. Um, so the first bite is, it's like a super fudgy chocolate and it's crunchy and it's got that texture of, um, it's really light, like a brownie, but crunchy on the outside. And when you taste that first bite, there's just a hint, just a hint of peanut butter. And you look, you look at the cookie and go, Oh no, there's a secret center here and it's definitely peanut butter. And you... Or you're happy if that was the entire experience, but the second bite is mostly peanut butter. And so now you're having a peanut butter cookie after having your fudge cookie, and then you end with a fudge cookie. That is the best. And yes, I do appoint you. Trudy, I appoint your cookie special ambassador to Cookiedonia. No one else will do. It had to be a professional. Trudy Wang, your cookies. Oh, it's wonderful. I recommend everyone try to make this one. The reason being is it's this is not just a regular cookie. This is a cookie that requires some engineering skills, some feats of um, of baking prowess must be uh, 
exhibited for this cookie to exist in your kitchen. And I want you to try it out. I'll have everything over at the You Are Not So Smart uh, Pinterest page and youarenotsosmart.com. And this cookie will fuel my discussion of some new research into uh, a topic that we've, we've discussed many times and we'll discuss many times in the future. And that's just simply ideology, um, be it political or otherwise. Um, the sense that you are correct in what you believe about how the world works and how it ought to work, how society should function, how people should be treated. And this new research suggests that we are, no matter which way we go on the political spectrum, uh, the farther we get into the extremes, the more it boggles our minds and makes it difficult for us to understand that belief is that it is belief. It is a fact. I found this particular bit of research over at science daily, ScienceDaily.com, And the headline was for liberals and conservatives belief superiority is bipartisan. People with extreme views feel superior about their beliefs. And it, uh, it's a release from Duke university. I went ahead and found the actual study and that's what I'm going to look at here. And in the actual study, uh, it uh, comes from the Association for Psychological Science. It was published in 2013. It comes from researchers at Duke, like I said. And the, uh, the study's headline is um, Feeling Superior is a Bipartisan Issue. Extremity, not direction of political views, predicts perceived superiority. So going into this research, the scientists note that there are two competing hypotheses in psychology right now. One says that the more conservative your beliefs, the more dogmatic you tend to be. And the other says that the more extreme your beliefs, whether they're conservative or liberal, the more dogmatic you tend to be. So the authors note that dogma and belief superiority, which is a term that they're introducing in this paper, are two different things. Dogma in the psychological sense is believing that your beliefs aren't actually beliefs, but instead they are fundamental truths that the world can be understood in no other way than the way that you understand it. And a person under the spell of dogma never expects to change. And this person thinks that being open-minded is dangerous because it would lead you astray from the truth. And the scientists in, the stu- uh, the scientists in this study are introducing another concept, which they call belief superiority. And at its most extreme, it seems like dogma, except the person who thinks that his or her beliefs are superior doesn't think that there is only one true way to see the world. He or she knows that beliefs can change and they can evolve and that you've believed different things over the course of your life and all that. But on certain issues, some beliefs are better and more correct than others. And those are the ones that you have on those issues. So the researchers hypothesize that people who don't want to compromise politically, the ones who are the hardest to deal with in Congress and other institutions that have the power to change the world, that those people think their views are superior and they think that to a stronger degree, the more extreme their beliefs. And to research this, the scientists had hundreds of people fill out questionnaires about U.S. wedge issues, government-controlled health care, illegal immigration, abortion, welfare, voter ID, income taxes, torture, affirmative action, and religion as a basis for laws. And the subjects rated how they felt about each one of these issues, and then they rated how superior they felt their beliefs were. So for example, with torture, no torture, even if the person has valuable information and was arrested for planting a bomb on an airplane or always torture every suspected terrorist, no matter what, those are considered extreme views while thinking that torture in circumstances in which, you know, for sure 
it will save lives and that there are no other options, that's considered somewhat less extreme. And, and everything has a gradient and you choose along that gradient. And then you say whether or not you, what you feel, whether or not you feel that that is a superior viewpoint than people on the other side. Uh, and the results are the more extreme your view, the more likely you were to believe that your view was superior to all others, no matter how you lean politically. So it wasn't a conservative thing or a liberal thing. It was just a person thing. And the most interesting result to me was that they found that extreme conservatives and extreme liberals didn't feel superior on every issue. Liberals tended to believe that they were intellectually and morally superior when discussing welfare and torture in religion-based laws while conservatives felt they had the superior beliefs concerning voter ID, affirmative action, and taxation. But neither side seemed to feel superior when it came to their beliefs about health care or illegal immigration. And the next result worth noting to me was that people in the middle, politically, tended to see all of their beliefs as being subject to change and could understand why people on the other side might see things the way they do. They could see where there was a valid uh, array of opinions on every single wedge issue. So belief superiority, in other words, it gets weaker the more moderate your views on any given issue. And so the authors, they say that this research shows you can feel very superior and correct about some things like, say, the way you see gun control and not feel superior about others like illegal immigration, which means that people rarely hold extreme beliefs across the board on all wedge issues. But when they do, they tend to see those beliefs as superior and at the most extreme, people can move all the way over into dogma where they lose the ability to recognize beliefs and instead see their worldview as constructed from irrefutable facts. And this really drives home the importance uh, that we talked about in a previous episode of adding the phrase, I believe to your political statements. When you're commenting online, when you're in an argument on Facebook, when you're uh, trying to get a point across on Twitter, if you add the words, I believe, it changes everything about what you're stating. For instance, saying, I believe that the third Batman movie was Christopher Nolan's best is a completely different statement than saying the third Batman movie is Christopher Nolan's best. So try that out the next time you comment on something online. Just add the words, I believe, and you'll notice how much it changes the sentiment of your assertion. It, it opens you up to the idea that maybe you aren't completely correct, that you are holding a viewpoint and it may not be superior to other viewpoints. It protects you. It insulates you from this uh, belief superiority the study talks about. And it opens you up to the fact that maybe you are in some ways ignorant. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Go to youarenotsosmart.com to find links to everything that we talked about in the show, all the videos, all the uh, YouTube channels we talked about. I have links to all of that over there. And go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com to pledge your support to the show and become a patron of the You Are Not So Smart podcast.
started, it keeps on going. The heat makes the other atoms capable of reaching to make more heat to make other atoms, and so on. So this terrible snapping... Hey there. If you stayed this long, here's a nice special secret after the credits bit. It's uh, the great Richard Feynman explaining what trees are and what fire is. If you'd like to see and hear the whole thing, it's on YouTube. It's an old BBC program called Fun to Imagine. How did it get started? Why is it that the wood's been sitting around all this time with the oxygen all this time? And it didn't do this earlier or something. Where did I get this from? Well, it came from a tree. And the, the substance of a tree is carbon. And where did that come from? That comes from the air. It's carbon dioxide from the air. People look at trees and they think it comes out of the ground. That plants grow out of the ground. But if you ask where the substance comes from, you find out where does it come from? The trees come out of the air? They surely come out of the air. No, they come out of the air. The carbon dioxide in the air goes into the tree and it changes it, kicking out the oxygen and uh, pushing the oxygen away from the carbon and leaving the carbon substance with water. Water comes out of the ground, you see. Only it, how did it get in there? It came out of the air, didn't it? It came down from the sky. So in fact, most of a tree, almost all of the tree is out of the ground. I'm sorry, it's out of the air. There's a little bit from the ground, some minerals and so forth. Now, of course, I told you the oxygen, we, we snow dioxygen and carbon stick together very tight. How is it the tree is so smart as to manage to take the carbon dioxide, which is the carbon oxygen nicely combined, and undo that so easy? Ah, life, life has some mysterious force. No, the sun is shining. And it's the sunlight that comes down and knocks this oxygen away from the carbon. So it takes sunlight to get the plant to work. And so the sun all the time is doing the work of separating the oxygen away from the carbon. The oxygen is some kind of terrible byproduct, which it spits back into the air and leaving the carbon and water and stuff to make the substance of the tree. Then when we take the substance of the tree and stick it in the fireplace, and the, there's all the oxygen made by these trees, and all the carbon would, would be much prefer to be close together again. And once you let the heat to get it started, it continues and makes an awful lot of activity while it's going back together again. And all this nice light and everything comes out. And everything is being undone. You're going back from carbon and oxygen back to carbon dioxide. And the light and heat that's coming out, that's the light and heat of the sun that went in. So it's sort of stored sun that's coming out when you burn it. a log. Next question. How is it the sun is so jiggly, so hot? I gotta stop somewhere. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time 
for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.